Every day, a small group of people are making quantum leaps forward, building wealth faster than most dream possible, almost like they have the Midas touch. On Breakaway Wealth, we'll unlock the secrets to breaking out of the herd, thinking big and building wealth on our own terms. And now let's join our host, the creator of Create Tailwind, and your abundance advocate, Jim Oliver. Welcome back. This is Jim Oliver. Today with me, I have Hunter Thompson, and Hunter is a dynamic guy and an investor out of California that's going to talk to us about how to make money in the real estate world and maybe in a, in a certain sector as well. Hunter, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. Honored to be on the program. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming on. Hunter, give us a 60-second or so rundown, just your background, who you are, where you're from, all that kind of stuff. Sure. So I am the founder of ASIM Capital, which is a private equity company that helps people invest passively in commercial real estate. Our focus is really generating asymmetric returns for investors through recession-resistant assets. And so those are the asset classes that I would say where the demand is stable or sometimes inversely correlated with the overall economy. I think that non-correlation is something that a lot of people talk about. I think, quote, diversification is something that a lot of financial advisors discuss. But at the end of the day, especially in the world of stock markets, all these assets are correlated. Even if it's international, it really doesn't even matter because it all is tied to the capital markets, debt in particular. This is what we saw in 2010. So essentially, we wanted to create investment vehicles, which are simple enough so that small individuals, family offices could actually mitigate some of those risks of the correlation between the overall economy and their portfolio. And we've come up with a couple of different strategies for doing that in terms of downside protection, but also in terms of identifying asset classes, which basically yield those results most directly. Um, we have about 300 investors and own about $60 million worth of assets and probably will be closer to $100 million by the end of 2019. So that'll kind of give you an idea of what we do and the scope of the business. Awesome. Awesome. And you have your own podcast, which is Cashflow Connections, which we are, we are constantly talking to people about cash flow. So I want to hear a little bit more about that later in the show. But let's go back to comparing what you're talking to people about versus, say, Wall Street. When people are looking for Wall Street investments, I always think that they're looking for retirement. Now, Retirement's kind of a nasty word in my mind because that means the definition of retirement is to be taken out of service. And I don't want to be taken out of service. I just want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And having passive investments that have cash flow, that have passive income, right? That's the answer because I can do that till I'm till I'm dead, right? Yeah, and your heirs can do it as well. I think that you essentially, you know, you're taking the wind out of my sails by pumping up my sails at the same time. So I'll, I'll put it this way. I was recently in a debate, what is the best route to financial freedom, passive investing or active investing? And my intention with the debate was not to move the goalposts, but even during the conversation, I couldn't help but say, if you define financial freedom as having enough cash flow that doesn't require you to work so much so that you can pay off your expenses without needing to do anything. I'm like basically defining passive cash flow. So I think it's it's literally the definition of being financially free is that passive cash flow to pay off the expenses so much so that you can predict that you're going to not need to work in the future. So I couldn't agree more with that statement. 
Yeah, you know, I like to say that you want to have enough cash flow to, to support your ideal standard of living. Because some of these young guys, I like to talk to, you know, I've got, I've got business partners as, as uh, young as 18 years old, and I've got a lot of guys in their 20s that are um, clients, and, and I love their enthusiasm, because, but, you know, their lifestyle, if, if, you know, where they're at now is not the lifestyle that they want, but they, but they, you know, they just have to find the assets and they're, they're starting to figure that out. And I mean, can you imagine, you know, not to get off track here or anything, but can you imagine saying to a 20 year old, I want you to put your money in a 401k and I'm going to get paid a fee for that for the next 30, 40 years. You can't touch your money. You can't benefit from it, but you're going to take risk with it every single day. And when you start to take money out 30, 40 years from now, that we're not even going to tell you how much it's going to cost you to take the money out via tax, right? I mean, who would put money in that? Are there 20-year-olds doing that? Man, it's a great question. I think that we are seeing a significant disruption in that industry. But to this day, and I was reviewing someone's financial situation recently where they were paying about a 1.5% annual fee to a money manager who purchased a mutual fund 20 years ago and hasn't made a trade since. Yeah. Literally, yeah. it's a openly traded mutual fund that right. rather than pay this 1.5% annually, which is just about the total return on an annual basis for this mutual fund itself, you could just fire the manager and literally keep the shares in place. That doesn't require you to even sell something and buy. No, just fire the manager, remove the fee, keep the shares. That's all he's been doing for 20 years. It's because there's so much marketing on the other side of the argument telling people to invest in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. And I actually can add to this a, a personal anecdote for why I even got started in this business. I was really confident that there was going to be a tremendous opportunity in financial assets in 2008. I'm mm -hmm. just one of the types of people that when things are bad, I feel much more comfortable entering a sector. And so I saw what was taking place. I saw the blood in the streets that was taking place. And I said, I'm going to go all in on financial assets. And so I was more drawn to stocks because that's where the marketing was. And so I invested in stocks similar to a Warren Buffett model, trying to pick valuation-based stocks, value-based stocks. Had success leading up to 2010, like most people would that invested in stocks in 2008. Mm -hmm. But then something happened that completely caused this paradigm shift, which almost no one talks about, which is the European debt crisis. This to me was my last straw moment because- I had spent all this time researching, reading every single book I could get my hands on, and also trying to plan my financial future based on the proceeds I had already received. And then all of a sudden, there's insane volatility in the US market, 600, 700 point intraday swings in the Dow Jones. And all the CNBC anchors are talking about the Greece bond yields all of a sudden for the first time, right? right? They're saying if the Greece bond yields remained below 7%, the S&P 500 was going to be fine. But if the Greece bond yields went above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. And it's like, under what, sir, how could I possibly have predicted that? How can I possibly have understood that that's where I should be focusing my due diligence efforts? Because now all of a sudden, this is playing a huge role in my financial future. By the way, if you guys aren't familiar, they did end up going above 7%. And it did create massive volatility and a $110 billion bailout of Greece and all this stuff. It's like, I need to identify an asset class that's simple enough that I can actually conduct accurate due diligence and isn't correlated 
with these unforeseeable financial matters on the global capital markets. So that's what eventually led me to real estate. Which is awesome because you know what we always say is whoever controls the money makes the money. For 15 years, Hunter, I um, had my own fee-based financial planning firm and I know the fees and everything else. And I thought all I have to do is get all these assets under management. When I turned the corner was doing the math on my client's actual rate of return versus what their average rates of return were and their gross average rate of return to their net actual rate of return, not what they were averaging. And it was massively different. And I, at that point said, this is not how to build wealth. And it's this, this has got to change. And we went in a different direction and everyone around us didn't build wealth in wall street. What they built it in real estate or in businesses, but it was assets, not financial instruments, financial instruments based on Wall Street. So if all of these real estate investors were really the ones that were becoming wealthy, how do I get into that? So how did you, how did you turn that corner? Yeah, sure. I mean, even before I get into that, I want to commend you for mentioning that. I mean, I, I didn't know that that was your background. That is not something that I take lightly because I can know from just you know the conversation we're having right now, you're able to communicate something that you're passionate about easily, something that comes naturally to you. So what does that mean? You found that out probably in an early age. Listen, all I got to find out is a product that I like and I'll be able to effectively communicate it to clients and I'll get them across the finish line, right? right. And then somewhere along the lines, you realize this doesn't line up with my ethical worldview and you made a shift. And that is not common. Two things, number one, having that, uncomfortable conversation with yourself and number two actually making the change as a result of that conversation so this is why i love the real estate business because it's usually relatively small companies filled with people that have made that decision at some point in their life so in terms of my story you know back then there was such a lack of liquidity in the market that we were able to develop significant relationships with institutional quality sponsors and provide liquidity for their purchases so like I mentioned, 2011, 2012 is when I really started ramping up and the market timing was very favorable, but perhaps even more favorable was the fact that really quality operating partners were struggling to raise capital for the first time in their career because everyone was freeze, like it was a complete freeze. And it may, it's very easy now to say, wow, what an incredible time to invest in real estate. I can tell you personally, the response from like, you know, friends and family was, oh, you're insane, not, oh, what a great time to invest in real estate. <laughs> so that was an interesting opportunity. And then as the market started to correct and we saw asset prices increase and the track record was really solidified in terms of our due diligence process, we said, look, there's a great demand for this. I saw it was taking place in the crowdfunding world. And you know those websites, they all look the same. You cannot tell who is actually has any background in real estate underwriting or due diligence. You can't tell what, who is a Craigslist basically for real estate deals and who actually is a principal owner of these properties. And so I made an investment vehicle and an incentive structure, which is overwhelmingly weighted based on compensation above a preferred return. Like usually 75 to 80 plus percent of our entire compensation structure is subject to those hurdles, meaning investors receive those hurdles before we get really get paid. And that has eliminated that challenge that you were talking about earlier in the sense that I know if we're doing a deal 
and we co-invest in each deal. So if we're doing a deal and I'm a significant co-invest and all the compensation, at least the stuff that actually makes us make money, is weighted to the back end, now I have my vision cleared and I can actually focus on deals that I think will perform. And I have been very compelled by the self-storage business, uh, the mobile home park business, and the workforce housing business due to the fact that the worse the economy does, the more demand there is for the product. And that really starts to balance out your, your entire portfolio. And I know that we'll talk about self-storage today, so I'll just mention briefly, um, the implication is people downsize more during recessions. They also go through things like job changes or layoffs or having to move unexpectedly or having kids move home from college unexpectedly. All those things result in demand for the product. And when you have an investment like that, it balances the whole thing out. You get the best of both worlds. You get the demand increasing and the economy is struggling. And then the valuations are much higher when the economy is booming. So I just don't see a downside there to building at least a significant portion of your portfolio focused on those types of investment vehicles. Yeah, no, that you're exactly right. That's a lot of people don't think about that. But the thing that I like that you're doing, and you wrote a book, right? Tell everybody the name of the book. Yeah. So it's Little Boxes, Big Profits, A Passive Investor's Guide to Self-Storage. So what I like about that is you're saying the passive investor. I'm sitting in South Dakota and because we have no state income tax, my neighborhood is full of docks because we're right on the border of Nebraska and Iowa. When I lived in Los Angeles, I had no idea where I probably could have picked out Iowa on the map, but that was about as close as I could get. Um, but I know you grew up, you didn't grow up in Los Angeles, so you're, hopefully you're not as tainted uh, as I was. Right. But uh, So our neighborhood, be, because they can work at the hospitals, they can do a lot of operations and procedures in South Dakota, pay no state income tax. That's a big deal when state income tax is 8 or 10% or whatever it's going to be in the next 30 years. And so, but most doctors, they lose money investing in things because they they invest in the wrong thing or they think that they're going to own fast food restaurants and they don't know anything about it. Right. You know, it's back to the, the book, uh, the richest man in Babylon. One of the principles is invest in what you know. Well, if you don't know, then it's who, not how, who do you collaborate, which is exactly what you were just saying. How do you find the right person to collaborate where you can collaborate on a passive basis, but where both of you have some skin in the game, right? And, and so talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so for me, when I was first introduced into this model, it's something that I was thankfully introduced to very early in my career, I couldn't believe how advantageous it was. Essentially, what you're kind of outlining there is the, quote, syndicated model. So this is when you pull investors together as opposed to one person putting up $100,000 to buy a $100,000 house. Each of the 10 people, let's say, each put up $100,000 and therefore can buy a high quality commercial real estate asset. And what this does is you start to get into the world of highly sophisticated, you know, Ivy League background, institutional quality assets, where you're dealing with someone, a sponsor who oversees the day-to-day -day management of the, the property, but not on a property management basis, but directly interfaces with the property manager. So what this means is when you're a passive investor, if something goes wrong at the property level, the manager may talk to the sponsor, but the sponsor doesn't really tell the investor like all the details of the day-to-day. -day. 
And so this allows you, doctors in your example, they can be high income earners. They can also invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in these types of deals, but it doesn't require their time, right? right. Because especially for high income earners, that's the most important point. Now that is something that's clear given the definition of being passive, but there's a lot lurking under there that isn't really brought to light. The most important being when you get into institutional quality, let's say $5 million, $10 million, $50 million properties, the discrepancy between a mom and pop owner and a best in class owner is extremely significant because then you start dealing with systems, processes, software, relationships of large institutional lenders, for example. And then it becomes so advantageous that a sponsor can more than make up for their interest in the deal because they'll get a percentage of the deal for facilitating this entire investment. And so then you have dealing with not the time component is removed. You also, you're relying on the sponsor to their ability to get, let's say a $20 million loan, which you and I probably couldn't get on our own, but they could because of their track record and their balance sheet. Yep. You also have the component that you're removing a massive risk of owning real estate from the profile of the deal. So anyone that owns a lot of properties, you know that let's say you own hundred properties. It's likely that you've probably involved in some sort of litigation. That can be a major, major challenge. And if something goes wrong, you can get a significant amount of your principal eliminated from just dealing with that. When you invest in passive deals, there's a delineation between the passive investors and the general partner. And that delineation removes the liability for things like on-site liability or credit liability. And so there's a combination of things that make it really advantageous, but particularly with the self-storage vehicle, because it can be extremely complicated. So a lot of people think it's a simple asset class, but the best in class, they have online marketing sales systems. They have SEO, they have relationships with nearby businesses like truck rental companies or university or military bases, all of which make for great tenants. Management protocols and branded merchandise. I can go on and on. The key here is that the self-storage business is incredibly fragmented with single asset owners and they just have an incredible disadvantage compared to the companies that we work with. So when we implement a infrastructure, which has been time tested over 20 plus properties, you immediately start to generate NOI increases. And those are just the most favorable ways to you know, provide those asymmetric returns. Yeah, that's great. And, and you know, you're exactly right. If I go buy, let's say a storage unit in some small town in South Dakota, and I can put in all these different improvements in the system and maybe they don't have text to, to open the gate and they're still collecting their, their fees by check and there's no auto pay. But, I mean, I can make all these improvements and some of them, quite frankly, are common sense, but, sure. but I'm going to have to do it and I'm going to have to then shop to see which is the best system and shop to see what, you know, all of the different things that I have to do then I would have to go out and build those relationships. And that is really the opposite of what we said we want in the very beginning, which is <laughs> passive income. Right. Passive meaning I don't have to go to work to earn it. If I'm making those relationships and those changes, I'm still working. I might not be doing the job that I do every day, but I'm still working. So if I'm a doctor or I'm a business owner that is trying to diversify my business and my assets, then this is the, that's what I'm looking for. I could go and buy McDonald's, but then if I buy a McDonald's, 
they're bringing some of those same things. You're basically saying the structure, we used to always say structure equals success. If I go open Jim's Burgers, the chances of me succeeding are very slim. If I go buy a McDonald's, it's much higher if same way if I want to get into self-storage, which by the way, I'd want to more than getting into the fast food business. But that's just, uh, that's just me. I don't want anything to do with food, but well, I can give you a perfect example. Yeah. Picture very clearly. One of my favorite examples to give is that there are hundreds and thousands of self-storage facilities in the United States that don't have a relationship with a truck rental company. Right. So we can buy these properties based on in-place income. Day two, we call up our contact at U-Haul. They bring over 15 trucks. They park them on the facility. U-Haul still owns the, the trucks. We have a system in, in place for sales, which will increase the likelihood that renters will use them. They're obviously moving in and out. This is the most reason that people use self-storage. And we'll get a commission from U-Haul for facilitating the transaction. I have personally invested in many properties where that one line item, which was a previously a zero, a goose egg for the previous owner now is doing $3,500 a month directly to the bottom line. So let's just say extremely conservative numbers, right? $3,500 a month times 12 divided by a seven cap. Yeah. That's $600,000 of equity. Right. Just by implementing that strategy, right? That's not a capital expenditure. That's not, you developed a bunch of new units. That's not, you had to get zoning and change it. No, it's a straightforward play and despite the fact that I've been on many, many shows discussing it, that opportunity is still there because of the fragmentation of the business. Right. So, you know, what I love about that too is when you think of somebody wanting to get started, they don't understand like what is, what is my goal in the end? Let's say I have a hundred thousand or I have a million dollars or whatever to invest, or I got $10 million to invest. What, what am I trying to do? How am I going to get to the point where, what we said in the beginning, okay, look, I get a great return and I turn my 10 million into 15 million and then the 20 million or whatever it is. Okay. Then what? But what we're really talking about is how to turn your lump sum into cash flow forever and an increasing cash flow. And you said this in the beginning too, Hunter is what, what I call the noise out there, the advertising, the, the, the green lines for fidelity or the number for principal or, or, or uh, prudential, whoever that was that would have that number under their arms. And they are so good at throwing out this noise to keep you from really the, what you should be focused on. And I'll give you another example of that real quick. So a few weeks ago, I was watching NBC news and they were talking and they said, Trump lost a billion dollars over these years in his business. And, and, and by the way, I don't care if you love Trump or hate Trump, this isn't a political show, but the thing I thought, Oh no, they're going to tell people they're going to explain that with real estate, it depreciates on your taxes while it's appreciating in value. <laughs> they're going to, they're going to give it away. But right. No, they, they were just so focused on, on thumping on Trump that they didn't even do it. I thought, Oh, thank goodness. They <laughs> didn't give it away. Right. That is so funny. That's always my favorite thing. When you either find something out or see something in the media where you realize, Oh my gosh, I don't want my competitors to know that. And you're like, damn, I must be doing the right thing. <laughs> That's one yeah. of those moments. And yeah, it's, it's amazing. And especially with the self-storage business, there's a lot of write-offs for you know office. It, 
get all the advantages of owning real estate, like access to debt, you get to the fact that it's inflation resistant, et cetera, and that it appreciates. But when it comes to the business side of things, there is office supplies, which are depreciated over a short schedule. And so it's common, we can issue a half a million dollars to our investors on an annual basis, and all the K-1s are net negative, meaning that the tax basis is basically zero or basically inconsequential. And no, it's, it's true. And even to this day, even for investors that we have at the end of the year, especially the first year, they're going to say, oh, it looks like we lost money. I'm like, yes, but you want to lose money. You receive $10,000 in cash flow, but you don't have to pay taxes on it, which is like one of the greatest reasons to invest in real estate. Now, by the way, the people that are in that, and when you think of the tax quadrant, the Kiyosaki's tax quadrant, it's hard to get the E's and the S's to understand that. But once they do, they think it's the greatest thing of all time. Because if I'm a high, highly compensated doctor, I don't ever think that I can get a dollar without having to pay tax on it. In fact, I'm trained to understand that that's what's going to happen. But when you're in the B and the I quadrant, which is the business owner or the investor quadrant, you should not pay tax if you're doing it right. You should be you should be exactly in the situation that you just described. So let's say that, all right, after this 20 some minutes that I'm thinking to myself, all right, I got to find out more about this. I got to find out how I can get involved. What would I do? Sure. And I appreciate you again. Let me discuss this matter on your platform because I am really passionate about it. So, okay, I'll be honest. I'll give you my website and all that. But before we even get into that, let's just say this. Education. Absolutely first because it is a really interesting time to be in the real estate sector. There's access to deals on the internet for the first time ever, right? In the first mm -hmm. time in the last eight years, there's never been access to real estate deals. But with that access becomes a great responsibility. And I don't know that the education yet has caught up. So this is why we do our podcast, Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. It's extremely dense. If you listen to 10 episodes, you'll know more than I knew about real estate after a year of going to networking events. And if you like what we talk about and you're interested in the type of things that we've talked about today, you know, we have available investment opportunities for accredited investors. And those are available on asymcapital.com. That's A-S-Y-M-Capital.com. More than anything, this business is an incredible way to generate wealth. It's a very lucrative business, but you have to put faith in the right team. And so that's part of the value add we have for our investors is that we have curated these relationships over years, over many, many properties, and we provide access to institutional quality sponsors, you know, $100 million, $500 million, $700 million under management, as opposed to try to weed through what is on the internet and you don't really know who they are or have any particular background in the asset class, which is where we come in. So that'll kind of give you a summary. And I agree with you. We do not get educated on money in this country. And um, I, I know I'm picking on doctors today. So all of my friends that are doctors, I apologize. And I'll buy you a round uh, after <laughs> we play golf on Saturday. But, you know, they go to school sometimes for 17 years and they don't have one business class. So, so, but that's not just the doctors. I mean, I know people that have uh, bachelor's degrees in business management that they don't really understand how money works. And, oh my gosh. And so, it, yeah, it's insane. Uh, sorry to cut you yeah. off. It's just completely insane. No, no, I, mean, yeah, I mean, how hard is it to teach a high school student, here's what it means to have a business, make a website, draw traffic to it, get their email and curate them and nurture them. 
and then close close the deal. That's what business basically is right now. That's a one week program and no one under the age of 20 has received that program. You have to go to Wharton in order to get that program. (laughs) Right. And what happens is that's, you know, and that's what this podcast is all about is how to break away from the herd and, and break away from the chains. Sometimes people ask me, Jim, what do you do? And I, and if I'm just, you know, um, again, maybe if it's on the golf course or something like that, I say, I free slaves and they go, what are you talking about? Like, they just like, look at me, like they're taken aback. Right. And, and I say, I, I free financial slaves. I show you that being part of the herd, there's only one end and it's not good. You have to break away. You just have to make the decision to do it. But once I make the decision, then how do I educate myself? And I agree with you. So now I'm going to ask you, if I had to go read one or two books that you would recommend to every single person that you meet, what are they? Wow. Um, Okay. So I will say that my favorite business book and what I think is extremely underrated is Double Double by Cameron Harold. Um, It's very dense. So if that's the kind of thing, it's basically an operating system. It's not EOS, but it's similar. Um, It's a operating manual for how to double the size of your business in three years or less. And there's so much in there and I don't think there's enough on it. Another one that I don't think is talked about enough is the charisma myth, which basically analyzes and debunks the myth that some people were simply born with charisma and others simply should resort to being in a lab somewhere or in front of a computer the whole time. Um, It is true that some people are born with charisma, but most of the people that you think of when you think of charismatic people, they have specifically focused efforts towards that charisma and it can be what you're genetically limited is far beyond when it comes to something like social interactions so if you do a couple i'll give you one tip real quick and i know we're short on time but i'll just give you one tip that just like saves me so much i do a lot of my networking over the internet so sometimes in-person meetings i'm not as comfortable as i am over podcasts when people see that you're uncomfortable they assume the worst they assume it's about them so that means if it's at a restaurant and you're hot or you have to go to the bathroom and you're just making that weird face that's kind of uncomfortable, they think that it's about them. So one thing, one tip that I feel is just such a godsend is to basically, whenever you start to feel uncomfortable, whether it's about the conversation or not, think of one really nice thing about that person that you're talking to. Wow, it's really awesome that this person is also interested in alternative investments just like me, which is why we're having this meeting. It's really awesome that this person has gone out of their way to move money away from a financial advisor, takes so much you know, uh, courage just like me, and that's absolutely cool. And then as soon as you think that, your face relaxes and you can tell the conversation goes um, a little bit better. So those two books, I know I went <laughs> over time on that little suggestion. No, no, that's okay. Yeah, I'm a big fan of strategic coach Dan Sullivan, and he had a program that I have on an iPod, by the way, and it's broken, but it's still there, and I'm going to find somebody that's going to be able to uh, get it off there for me. But he had a program that I think was 21 sessions, and it was called Always Be Increasing Your Confidence. Confidence is a skill set. And the way that you increase your confidence is you educate yourself and you research what this subject until you are confident and convicted that you know what you're talking about. When you're confident, people pick up on it in two seconds. And it's just like the charisma myth is I built a firm when I was in my 20s and early 30s hiring people with charisma and it worked but here's the problem is when you do that they can't recreate themselves Mm -hmm. right because it wasn't and so 
That's right. Because they don't really want to give you that secret of how they did it, but they did it exactly the way that you mentioned is it's a skill set. Having charisma is a skill set. Having those techniques, it's a skill set. You can learn it just like being successful in real estate. And uh, I'm going to cut it off there, even though I could talk to you for hours about this, Hunter. And I really appreciate your time. And I think that, you know, to the audience, please listen to this. Listen to it again if you need to. Read the books that Hunter has, has uh, suggested and go to the website, research it. Maybe for you, may not be for you, but you know what? You're not going to know until you go there and educate yourself. And I really just appreciate you taking the time, Hunter, to help educate our audience and, and help uh, serve the people out there looking to break away. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Till next time, uh, let's break away and let's, uh, let's take action. The only thing that cures the fear that you're feeling is action. Action cures fear. Thank you very much. Till next time. Want to become your own banker and build wealth on your own terms? We'd love to help. Go to createtailwind.com to learn more and schedule a complimentary consultation.